Asia Tech Podcast. Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Hello and welcome to Asian Tech Podcast Stories. My name is Graham Brown. Really happy today. Back in the studio, John Tanner, who co-founded Mitchell Lake Group with the purpose of inspiring people to succeed. Based in Singapore, Mitchell Lake provides global executive search, market entry and talent acquisition solutions for a whole range of companies. Some of them you know, companies like Dropbox, Square, Snapchat, etc. Recognized as the best boutique agency by Thomson Reuters Recruitment Excellent Awards. John, welcome back. Great to be back. Thanks, Graham. That's really good to have you here. We've got a lot to talk about. A lot has changed in the last six months, I have to say, as the market is moving fast. So maybe we can um, talk about what is changing. Because, I mean, you're in the space of, I suppose, I mean, if anybody sees change first, it's you, because you see talented individuals coming to Asia. So you can actually quantify that, right? I'm just sort of talking about it from the the top-down view, but you're actually seeing people up, leave their comfort zones and come to all over Asia, right? So it's happening now. Yeah, absolutely. And we, you know, we, I guess we're a lead indicator in a way of um, either commercial interest in a a new market um, because someone wants us to get first feet on the ground or um, there are candidates, as you say, who are who are actively looking to to migrate, and we're, you know, I think we've seen an increase in in interest um, on both sides of that equation. Uh, probably over the last twelve months, it's been accelerating. Mm. I think yeah. part of that might be, um, you know, perhaps macro that the the world economy is in better shape than it was twelve eighteen months ago, or it feels more optimistic. But certainly, there's a a realization that there's something going on here that um, that many people want to be a part of. I think they've been reading my Asia Matters report. I suspect they have. (laughs) Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. I was reading, you know, there was was an article, I don't know if you caught it, in Business Insider a couple of weeks back, and um, I talked about it with Kyle Ellicott on his show because he's based in San Francisco, and um, he comes to, flies a lot to Shenzhen and Hong Kong. And there was an article about somebody who worked for Google, and obviously Google's based in the Valley in San Francisco, Mountain View, all that sort of area. And uh, she was commuting from Oregon City. Now, my knowledge of American geography ain't great, but I know that Oregon is not in California. So I had to sort of look it up and it's a 10 hour commute. So basically what that means is that she's, uh, you know, commuting at the weekends back to Oregon mm. City, Bend or something like that, I think it was called. And, you know, sort of, North Bend, yeah. Oh, you know, all right. So there you go. Yeah. So she's got a pied a terre in um, in in San Francisco, which ain't cheap as well. And I just thought, wow, you know, that must just be the crazy life. Why don't they think about coming to Asia? I'm surely that must be on their minds now. Or what do you see? I mean, just what sort of reasons are people coming to Asia for now? Well, I, I think we probably touched on that in our last conversation. Um, is that some centres in San Francisco is absolutely the the most critical centre, are getting just really concentrated with competition but also incredibly expensive. I think, you know, I was talking to someone the other day who, or I don't know if I read it or I was talking to someone in conversation, but uh, noted that people are starting to live in dormitories in the city wow. now just to work. And it, it's like, you know, that used to be what you did when you backpacked. Not, yeah, yeah. Uh, people living in when, cars. Yeah, not when you try to um, <laughs> be part of the world's most progressive technology economy. So it, I, I think there are, are many reasons. I think... Um, 
we're certainly seeing, and I think that has an impact perhaps on the, the populations that have migrated to those places that are becoming increasingly difficult to to make a living in, um, is to think about where they're from and wondering if they can do things either remotely or whether there are opportunities to, mm. to work for in the same economy uh, in terms of the digital economy, um, but back at, at closer to home. Um, and for many of those people, I think, you know, uh, again, I think we're touching on another point we might have covered, but uh, the great vast majority of, of technologists in the Bay Area weren't born in the US. Mm. So it's a, mm. it's a really interesting time. But we're seeing, you know, certainly a migration of interest, um, you know, from commercial and uh, people who are looking at the region um, for opportunities and, and they're sort of either running out of gas um, in London or New York or, or San Francisco or one of the major centres and they know something exciting is happening here and they, they want to get involved. And, you know, increasingly also we're seeing, you know, I know some entrepreneurs who recently uh, sold a business and did very well out of it, but, have, uh, you know, one of them has migrated to, well, actually a number of them, I probably know four, have migrated to Bali to, uh, hmm. you know, some of them to send their kids to green school, some have got, um, you know, ventures there uh, in retail or technology and, you know, in, in different places we're hearing, you know, Vietnam and, and other places we're hearing of, of really interesting projects and initiatives at scale that are funded by multinationals or entrepreneurs um, seeking to draw people there from from anywhere in the world, actually. So it's a, mm. it's a fascinating time. I mean, that, that last part's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, have you been down to Bali and Green School and had a look at that place? Yeah, well, I, uh, we haven't been and had a good look at Green School. We went and spent some time with friends who've got their kids there right. and, and got, because we were just on holiday, and I, I looked up and saw a friend had said that he was spending six months in Bali so his kids go to this really interesting experiential school in Ubud. Mm. And um, and we are going for a tour. Um, our, our, you know, our daughter's only three years old, so um, it's still a year or two away for us, but uh, we're interested in investigating that as a possibility for her at some point. Oh, wow. um, and... You know, another friend is setting up a, I think it's called Bali House, but a, a mixed um, co-working incubator, uh, hospitality space, um, a bit like a Soho house yeah, right, uh, right. in, in I think, Changu. And it's sort of, you know, and then I, as soon as you sort of talk to people about that, they go, oh, I know someone who's, who's moving yeah. to Bali. And similarly, other, you know, KL have spent a bit of time uh, recently and, uh, and you know, touched on Vietnam. I think these, these places have a lot of reasons to you know to be attractive um but when you overlay you know fantastic cost of living um doing interesting work and being able to you know live well there um it's pretty compelling yeah it's an interesting time isn't it i mean you talk about this you talk about the market equalizing which sort of yeah. it, it, in a way it frees up a lot of in a way we, we are until now until very recently we have to work in some geographical fixed location, don't we? Because, I mean, San Francisco is a good example of it, isn't it? And, yeah. you know, your first $5,000 just goes on rent as a result of that, right? I mean, you know, even though these yeah. online IT companies like Google and all that, and LinkedIn are, have their presences there, they're busing people in. So, but we're starting to see the shift. I mean, if you can consider, for example, like Bali or... Mm tech mm. companies can consider Bali. It's an interesting time because there's the arbitrage factor, isn't there, in there, which is sort of now these markets are kind of kind of getting leveled out. So what exactly do you mean by equalizing? What does that mean to us? Well, it's equalizing both ways. I think you get a decompression of, of some of those more um, hyper-concentrated areas of capital and, and commerce um, in the traditional, you know, centers of gravity in the world of, you know, as, as I said, New York, you know, San Francisco, 
LA, London, Paris, um, Sydney, um, as they become increasingly expensive, people look to Eastern Europe and, and secondary markets around Europe and North America to set up, set up secondary hubs. I think, mm. you know, if I'm not mistaken, I think, you know, Pinterest and um, Pandora Radio have, have recently, you know, opening up new hubs in, in the US, I think in Atlanta. Um, and I think also you know, a lot of talk about where Amazon sets up a secondary hub. So after a while, there's definitely a value in distribution. And fundamentally, the, the technology in that whole digital economy is about being distributed. So um, I think the, the equalization point I'm making is probably more, you know, talent um, and the cost of talent. Uh, while it might be much more affordable in secondary markets, there is a, a reality that um, people who are really great at product, engineering, design, data, marketing, and the leadership of all those um, things in a, either a digital transformation or a growth venture context uh, are in massive demand. Mm. Uh, you know, supply is, is nowhere near where it, where it could be or needs to be. So the reality is to get leaders of that caliber, um, you do need to pay, you know, at somewhere near a global benchmark, not a San Francisco benchmark. Or uh, you know where Google and, and some of those companies are driving the top of the market, but in a in a reasonable international um, benchmark to get those leaders into the these locations to execute these very you know really interesting and, and high value product uh, projects. But you know that's balanced out a little bit by you know local and incumbent talent in those areas being able to to you know complement those leaders and learn from those leaders, and then there's a transition of skills. And over time, I think there is a rebalancing. Um, you know, those economies become more successful. Um, they are able to produce really interesting things in a, a digital context or a consumer context. Um, certainly this region, you know, there's no lack of future demand coming mm. in the consumption side. So that's exciting. Um, many of the multinationals are, are, you know, are really starting to invest in their accelerators, accelerators and incubators and um, commercial opportunities around technology and mobility. Um, yeah, it's a very exciting time. Yeah. Very much so, and I think you know what. What sort of you no? Know, what you're talking about as well is that that sort of you, you've got to pay for you've got to pay a global salary now. I mean, you can't get away with paying people peanuts if they're going to come and live in Asia. Um, obviously, cost of living is on the rise as well, but still, there's a massive mm. advantage to be had. So, I guess the flip side of that as well is that it gives talent leaders a bit of flexibility as well. I mean, maybe they don't have to, I mean, taking San Francisco as an example, maybe they don't have to take the highest paid job just because that's the only one that's going to clear a bit of daylight every month so they can, yeah, you know, yeah. They, they can maybe do stuff which is a bit more interesting, right? A bit more flex, a bit more risky and so on. So are you seeing any of that? Are you seeing people taking risks when they come into Asia and a bit more, you know, a bit more bandwidth there? Um, where they can, I think there's still constraints around, you know, being able to work. Uh, effectively being able to work, although there are, you know, there are more and more incentives and programs for people to take advantage of around these economies, and um, you know, to that are encouraging inbound investment and entrepreneurialism. Um, I think there is a feeling now that you are, and the sense of risk is probably lower because there is this sort of mm. a groundswell and a, and a, you know, we've gone past part A of of getting ecosystems built um, around say, Southeast Asia and North and and West Asia. Um, and the the connectivity is great, right? So if if you've got great connectivity and you've got access to talent, um, the next thing you typically need is is you know enough commercial activity. So someone who's forged a path beforehand to have created pathways for people, whether that's successful startup ventures or successful you know at scale 
um, you know, multinational or, or national companies that have, have done really interesting things and created, um, you know, in, I'm talking in the digital context, you mm. know, maybe they've transformed um, a retailer or created a, an amazing e-commerce marketplace or whatever they've done. But once there's enough of that energy, then it starts, I think, to be um, self-generating. And many of the people who go through those um, journeys are able to reinvest both their, their talent, their time and their own capital into helping the next generation of, of um, talent locally and mm. otherwise come up. And the better the stories are, then the more likely you are also to attract the best of, of people from other markets and the best of capital exactly. and, and commerce. Yeah, yeah that, that's, a, that's a very important point about stories as well because that's really where Silicon Valley leads, isn't it? I mean, you talk about... I mean, capital, people, and access to customers. Asia has as much of that as Silicon Valley has. But, you know, really where Silicon Valley leads is the stories that attract people and that, you know, this person was successful, the role models that sort of breed the next generation or inspire the next generation. Asia's still, you know, behind on that, isn't it? They're still, you know, yeah. there's a gap there that's closing. Yeah, those stories are emerging here. And I think, um, you know, there are great stories of, you know, Grab is an emerging story, you know, Ola, all those companies, and some will, some will succeed and, and some won't at, at that scale. But you're starting to get these sort of really fascinating entrepreneurial journeys that um, and, and success stories mm. um, that we're seeing happen in other places. Australia's been the same with, you know, the Atlassian uh, guys and Canva and some of those entities are, have done fantastically well. And I think there are a similar um, you know, emerging and, and you know, proven stories out of out of the region here. Um, amazing stories, certainly out of China and yeah. um, you know now Southeast Asia and West Asia. So, I think you know they're coming. Uh, I think you need an inventory of stories to um, to sort of you know generate enough noise. But um, you, you know there are some some fantastic entrepreneurs here. Um, we are getting to the point where I think we'll see a lot more. There'll be a raft of success stories um, yeah. and learnings. But it's not always success stories that. That um, that help things along. It's sometimes it's just people need experience and and win, lose or draw. It's, it, every experience is is great. You can't teach experience. Um, yeah. it just has to happen. Yeah, win, lose or draw. I mean, as an Aussie, I'm sure you're not far away from some sport analogy somewhere. But it's like <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's, it's exactly the, the same, really, isn't it? With talent coming through in any sport that you look at, that they come through in waves, don't they? And you yeah, know, when, when they start, they they sort of you have to go out and invest in the very young and those young are inspired by that footballer or that Aussie rules player or whatever, or that cricket player or whatever. And that, that inspires them. And that takes time, doesn't it? And in the same way, I mean, we're starting to see that now definitely in Singapore with like private equity, aren't we? That now that you have angel investors going back into the ecosystem, which you didn't really have, you know, if you go back five years, it's only starting to happen now that this all takes time. It does, and I, I think you know you get you need to get a couple of generations in. Um, all those generations take place fairly quickly now because the market uh, and ventures and technology, you know, things grow and or are birthed and grow so quickly. Um, sometimes to exit, sometimes to success, and sometimes out, but then they regenerate, and and mm. and that's you know happening really quickly, and it's really impactful. I think if you extend that sporting, uh, you know, narrative, um, we're sort it of on a league. Me. Go on. Yeah, on a league table. Okay. Right? So, I think you sort of think about the attributes of, of recruitment and, and rebuilding or building a base of talent um, and that talent needs to be together and, and play together for a period of time and get into mm. a window of maturity um, where they're really competitive and they start to move up the table um, or even into a new division. Um, I think the region is moving into um, you know, the Premier League. Um, it might be just scraping over there at the moment, but 
um, you know, as they build and play together and, and attract more talent to their team, uh, the more competitive they're mm. going to be with those those top flight uh, organisations. So I, I think it's, you know, it's getting on board at the right time. And I, I feel, you know, hopefully we've done that. Uh, I've, I've only been here three years, but, um, you know, I think it's the next five years that are going to be super exciting. Absolutely. I mean, you're based in Singapore. I know you, geographically it's in Southeast Asia, but it's quite different, isn't it? I mean, it, well, I know the gap's closing with the rest of Southeast Asia if you compare Singapore with Thailand and Vietnam and Indonesia, for example. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Singapore has, you know, Singapore's more on the level of somewhere like Hong Kong or Shenzhen or Shanghai, for example. But when you talk about, going back to your point about green school in Bali, you know, that's the acid test. Could you, I mean, could you see a situation where you could run Mitchell Lake from there? I'd like to. <laughs> Tell us about <laughs> indulging. I want to yeah, know. Look, I think this I, is, indulging this is, myself by even on. thinking about it. Look, I, I think ultimately um, yeah, the reality of my business is that um, I've got Europe, US and Asia Pac in our um, operational remit and our clients are global. Um, look, the key for me is is probably more access to a, a good international airport mm. um, connectivity and um, I, I, regardless of where I live, I need to travel. Um, I think in the near term, the reality for me is that, um, you know, Depesar probably isn't quite as connected as it would ideally be for me to spend a lot of time in the <laughs> West and East Coast. So it, it could be a while before that was viable. But I, I could certainly see in the future that, um, and I think many people are doing this now, and I know a number of entrepreneurs who've, who've relocated to, um, you know, Bali's one example, um, you know, for many reasons, but they're, they're successfully able to, you know, perhaps live there six eight months a year mm. um, and then spend time in other centres around, you know, family or education or other things that they're doing with their kids. So um, it's certainly possible I'm seeing people do it. Now, they're the, probably the lucky people who've, who've had a, a level of success that allows them or affords them some flexibility. Um, but there's certainly what I am seeing is that, again, it's that transition, transition or transfer of, mm. of experience, advice and, and uh, investment into Bali. So it's fascinating what's happening in those those places. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even if you go to the to the the sort of the genesis of, I suppose that whole Uber thing with Hubbard and Steve Monroe, who came there and set that up. You know, when he came to Uber as an example, I believe that it didn't have any internet, and they had to, you know, they had to build the pipeline, so to speak, all the way across, you know, the rice fields and so on. It really was sort of. <laughs> Frontier stuff, stuff, frontier stories, but it takes somebody to do that. But yeah. that was the pioneering, you know, that they sort of, everybody comes in waves. I suppose he's sort of like the high risk individual, isn't it? They could take on board a lot of risk. And now people are coming because it has been de-risked to a degree, but not to the kind of degree where, you know, it, it's a, a no-brainer, right? Because like no, you say, no, the airport and so on. To consider. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think, you know, they've got traffic and other issues to, to contend with there as much as Southeast Asia does. But, you know, the core elements are there. I think um, the rest of it just needs to evolve. Mm. Uh, but I think, you know, it's, it's it, there are so many fantastic um, locations in region that are equally viable because I think, you know, now connectivity, if you have connectivity and reasonable infrastructure of education and health um, and, and, you know, social infrastructure, um, it's relatively safe um, and you have access to international airport mm. um there aren't many places you couldn't base yourself in in the majority of of roles that are likely to be around in 10 years time what does that mean for the large it companies who are recruiting this talent who are looking for this talent do they do they have to kind of rethink how they work with talent mm. because 
until now i mean i know they're all online but like like we said like with the san francisco example they require you to be in a specific place and to turn up at the office most of the time you may work from home like some days but is that changing and people thinking differently i i think they are i i think they're starting to and certainly they're starting with uh, I guess setting secondary hubs or, or distributed hubs up for different, perhaps you know, product teams and things. I think there's a, still a strong element of and value in teams um, having physical approximation or proximity. And um, but the tools now are so much better between mm. you know video conferencing or telepresencing and the, the many platforms, which I must use a dozen a week um, that people use for that. Uh, but also the, the collaboration tools uh, like Trello and Slack and um, they're increasingly mobile and agile ways to stay connected and, and productive. Um, I still think that's part of the challenge that we've got to um, contend with. I think that's probably a greater challenge for our generation um, than it will be for the next couple of generations coming behind us because they're more native to yeah. um, you know, communicating and connecting that way. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a giant social experiment. We don't really know. Uh, <laughs> technology is funny. It could thing. all go wrong. It could all go wrong. Well, we could all just go back yeah. to where we started, into the offices, if you, right? If you look at elections and social media, some things may be going wrong already. But, um, yeah, <laughs> How long we'll have we see. got? But yeah. you, there's a lot of that. I mean, you know, Asia has been, if you sort of go way back to the beginning of the 21st century, I mean, sort of even from about 2005, 2006 onwards, Asia was sort of the starting point for all that kind of digital nomad movement, yeah. which... I suppose was a front runner of the trend in a way, because these are the people who didn't have a lot to lose. A lot of them were students or young people who just kind of backpacking and, you know, normally they'd be bumming their way around Southeast Asia on a beach, but these people, you know, these are the ones that decided they were going to build an app or so on. And you had all those yeah. kind of, those, those centers pop up like in Chiang Mai and Bali obviously was one and these became popular. But then you had this sort of movement where now people are starting to you know like if you go to bali now you, you could easily sit in ubud or hubud with on, on the right hand side you can have a digital nomad nomad on the left hand side you can have a, a google software engineer right yeah, yeah and, well, and now, I think th there's sort of right. this third stage and one if you're seeing it is where now large it companies are, are sort of almost sending departments out and pushing them out into these co-working spaces and so on is, is that yeah. sort of happening in asia well i think that Co-working is a really interesting phenomenon in itself, um, and I think uh, first answer, well, the short answer is yes. Um, I think we're, you know, I'm aware of a couple of projects at the moment where multinationals are building those sorts of teams in Asia um, and moving in, people into the region uh, from their existing business to work with um, local talent uh, in organisations or client organisations uh, and looking for new talent to, to join those teams. I think, you know, a conversation I had with the CEO today was that, um, you know, there are a global, there are probably 500 people that's mm. a digital services business. Um, they're a good story, uh, originally from Australia. And he was saying, you know, we really need a global talent partnership. So we discussed that and he, he said, you know, don't mind where our team work. They're all great. They all functionally do similar things. You know, we work together well under the same banner and, um, you know, but there's an opportunity for being in Vietnam for a year to two years, um, but then you could be in Australia or the US or, or you know, Thailand or China um, or Europe. Uh, and, and I think people are probably, you know, there's a big sort of portion of the population that might find that really attractive mm. um, for, you know, whether they're independent or solo or have young families or, or families that have grown up. Um, 
it's an interesting sort of thing to imagine that you could live anywhere you want in the world. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's amazing. And it's definitely a, a plus in terms of recruitment. It, as you say, for some people, not for everybody else, not the majority, obviously, but you yeah. know, for some people who seek the experience as well. W- would that work for a bank? And the reason I ask is I, I think it was HSBC that I heard about were relocating their, they, they basically set up in a co-working space. And I'm, I'm talking very sort of loosely here because I don't have all the details. It was a while ago. They basically, because for them it was, you know, HSBC have been under a massive reorg the last couple of years and it's all, you know, changed for them. And one of their strategies was to take people out of the head office and put them into a co-working space because it, effectively it was cheaper. But rather than sort of put them into a co-working space and let them mingle, they had their own floor on the co-working space. So it's yeah. sort of co-working. Self-defeating. Yeah. It's, like, it's pro- proximity working. That's it, yeah. I mean, <laughs> what, what do you think when you see that? What's going, is that, is that well, the future or is that all going wrong? Well, I, I don't know. I think it's sort of, as long as they're, I mean, there'd be common areas, I would hope. <laughs> that, um, they, they share sure. rooftops. Are you sure about that? Cafes, I would hope, but maybe not. Um, look, we, we work in a co-working space in a couple of different locations, uh, in the world and then in other parts we have our own spaces and we we bring in and, and work with startups who, you know, well, I wouldn't say we're incubating them, but we partner with them to, to share the space and, and that drives energy for us, which we mm. find great. Obviously, they, you know, nine times out of ten, they end up they being a client or we can help them in, in, you know, in terms of distribution and introductions or capital or whatever it might be. And um, there's a, a really good symbiotic um relationship that we typically have with companies around us you know we've got clients who've moved into our co-working space here from australia mm. because they wanted to move to asia and they saw how effective it was for us um so it's you know and, and in this space there's dropbox and 500 startups and you know and then a dozen um sort of small to medium-sized businesses either either you know outposts of bigger businesses or, or brand new ventures in retail or technology or services so you know, we find that really effective. I think um, there's a lot of benefit for big companies as well. Big companies probably suffer from the fact that, you know, it's probably good for them to have um, everyone on one open floor because they probably wouldn't right. even know each other that well. Um, yeah. Historically, you know, it used to be much boxier as an environment. Teams are very, you know, silos and teams and things are separated. So as long as you get some sort of cross-pollination of, um, I think, you know, groups and ideas, and, and this comes back to this sort of diversity and inclusion as well, um, mm being exposed to different models of work, um, different ways of working and uh, different companies and different brands and different, you know, services and products. It, it's all really healthy. Um, and I think being around young, growing companies is also mm. great and it's good for them to be around companies that have maturity and in terms of their channels and relationships and networks and capital. Yeah. I, I, you know, you, you talk about large companies benefiting from just, you know, even just putting somebody on one floor I think the, always the argument is being is that that if they put their talent into a co-working space, they'd lose them because somebody would poach them, right? But I think the actual, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the data shows that it's the other way around, right? People who, uh, you know, I mean, they might be acquiring people that way. Right, well, there you go. Well, I mean, yeah. I'm curious. I mean, you, you said you you had clients come across and work in the same co-working space as you. Was that sort of your pitch? Did you sort of suggest that idea to them? Well, we've always known a lot of other entrepreneurs and adventures in the US and Australia and, and Asia now. Um, and for us, it was we're always fast growing. And it's, you know, when there were two of us, 
when we started, you know, five years later, there were probably 12, and then three years later, there were 40, and, you know, and just, it's very hard. The traditional real estate market, and I think mm. this is why co-working is so attractive, doesn't really support uh, rapid growth or um, in a way that um, de-risks it. So there's a lot of risk associated with taking a big lease for a long period of time that you're going to assume that you're going to grow into. For us, it was, um, you know, as a way of solving that problem. So we could um, sublet or, you know, to other ventures who, who were also in growth and help them outgrow us, which happened a couple of times. We, we shared with, with you know, a company called Fifth Finger in Australia, another mm-hmm. one called, um, who were eventually acquired by MSN and then went to the US and we co-worked with them in San Francisco for for five years and, and then they were bought by another company and we placed everyone in that business. And so we've sort of had long history of, of partnering and close association with growth ventures. And at that time, it meant we didn't have to cover a lot of rent that was for an empty space or um, and neither did they. And, and that suited them very well and suited us very well. So we've, we've worked it both ways and it's commercially great. But more than anything, if you're a small growing team, you've, you, you've got an emerging culture. It's great to be around good energy yeah, and yeah. good people. So, yeah, at the same time, you have to get on with your neighbours and um, make sure the kitchen stays clean and all that <laughs> sort of things. Um, well, you can drive some tension. Um, but, no, it's, uh, we've always found it a great thing to do. So it's great now that it's such a, you know, uh, there's so much infrastructure for co-working. Mm. Uh, there must be 90-plus uh, sort of co-working spaces in Singapore. Yeah, I mean, one of the, the questions that comes up a few times on Asia Tech Podcast, and there's no definitive answer to it because we don't know, but... Is that the future model of work? You know, would, would we sort of look back at, you know, in 20, 30 years' time and look back at our sort of previous lives and say, oh, it's, it's crazy that all these people are going to work in offices, right? I mean, mm. what do you think? Because I don't know where, where it's going because people say, well, you've got to have offices for some reason. I mean, you've got to have a photocopier shared and water cooler and all that sort of nonsense. But Well, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think a lot of that used to be around maybe IP and confidentiality or security and, and those things. And certainly that's still a major topic for a lot of, um, you know, banks and those different firms that deal with sensitive things. But um, your reality now is everything's going to the cloud. It's a thin client. Mm. Uh, you know, there's still a need for, I guess, you know, Chinese walls or firewalls between information and people and those sorts of things. But fundamentally, it's probably... If as long as you can work effectively um, at a multinational or a, a global level, you really you want local interaction and solutions and um, services anyway. So I, you know, having everyone concentrated in one place, um, you know, it's good in some ways and bad in others. So I, it seems to be evolving in a, a more distributed direction. I think, as with everything, the pendulum swings and it'll it may swing too far, and we'll realise where the 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 mean needs to be. But, um, you know, I think it's still a, a rolling social experiment. Yeah, I think it's one that it certainly benefits talent, though. And I think that, you yeah, know, totally. They, they yeah. certainly, like you say, that, that envir- they seek out the environment because we have choice now. You know, I don't have to necessarily work here if I can go there where the environment's better, you know, and, and maybe I want to be surrounded by people of different stripes because that benefits yeah. me, right? And yeah. I think talented people want that, and that that's a real benefit, isn't it? And I can remember, I mean, I used to work in telecoms for my sins. Like, I mean, I was in telecoms since the late 90s. And um, I can remember meeting people from companies like Vodafone. Yeah. And uh, I'd meet them for a coffee in Starbucks. And uh, just sort of, oh, get out your laptop, because, you know, they would have mobile internet back then, which is a big deal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, get out your laptop and look at something. They'd pull out a laptop and 
what's wrong with your laptop? And it, it didn't have a, you know, the hard drive had been taken out of it. And yeah. why, why don't you have a hard drive? Oh, we're not allowed to take hard drives out of the office. <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> yeah. the sort of, you know, yeah. that's the mindset, the legacy that we're dealing. Because I think that's how, I mean, whether that's the most talented guy, whether that's the leader of the, the industry or whatever, they're all treated the same. And I don't think that's a great environment. That mindset is still there, isn't it? And that's kind of what we're working against. Yeah, I think it, it takes a, a while. And this is a, you know, the great challenge of digital transformation as it's termed. But I think for big organisations with um, great histories and big assets and things, they've, they perceive they have a lot to lose. So they're very protective mm. of their, those assets um, and, and also they're, they're driven to um, the tune of or the beat of the drum that's that's created by the board and the, the investors or the shareholders. So they're expected to grow X amount and yield X amount every year. And um, at the moment, I think the challenge is they have to take some big risks mm. um, and, and that those two things don't gel very well. Um, you know, you talk about there's a large investment bank and one of the biggest internet companies in the world doing a joint venture in banking services at the moment. And then there's the, the Chinese uh, you know, players in this part of the world who are doing similar things with yeah. um, with managing cash and non-banked or unbanked populations and how transactions take place and all those things. So I think, you know, you've got to change things, but you, they're constrained by technology debt and silos and scale and mm. it, it just takes a long time for that to, to iterate out. You know, plenty of big organisations you talk to can't use Google Hangouts or, you know, can't use this platform or that platform because it's just not signed off by IT. Um and although it might be fully secure. Yeah, without yeah. a doubt. And it goes back to the stories as well, isn't it? That people need the stories to show them what's possible and what the role models could be. I mean, when you look around the industry and IT, especially the larger players, who's getting it right? Who, who sort of, you know, who are the companies you admire who, when you talk about digital transformation, are really sort of, you know, up there leading by example and sort of, you know, maybe moving out of that very centralised model about how to build a business and maybe have some presences in Asia as well. Yeah, I think it's, well, it's, it can be a bit difficult to identify because I think the big organisations that are that are leading the way are still very early stages in that transformation. And then you've got very big pure play digital companies or technology companies that, are, that just aren't dealing with the same legacy. So I think you see pockets of success in, say, some airlines. I, I talk a lot about airlines and the fact that they don't have a lot of... Um, spare cash lying around mm. most of them it's not many people make money from shipping uh, people from one side of the world to the other anymore it's more the ancillary services um and the direct to customer retail and and those things that they're making their income from or, or their profit um but they've been able to do a lot with with limited investment compared to some industries and you look at you know they've got self-check-in and kiosks they've got mm. apps and you know loyalty data um you know onboard experience they've got onboard media um, then they've got direct retail. You know, uh, Qantas in Australia is is a very big, um, you know, one of the biggest retailers of wine online. Um, really, their loyalty program. Yeah, and it's you're seeing these sort of things happen everywhere. I think they've done. You, you know, given the the amount that they have to spend on these things, they've done amazingly well. And um, I think increasingly they're seeing. You know, as every big business is seeing that their 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 relationship with customers is changing or their services and product opportunities are, are greater if they have good relationships with those customers and good insights into what those customers want and where, they're at, where they are and, and those sorts of things. So, you know, I think some of those companies have done well. I, you know, in terms of people moving into the region, I think there are certainly multinational banks who are starting to, and where we have seen success is probably where um, people have been able to push 
uh, or gr- create a new organisation outside of the, mm. the, the mothership. So, um, you know, we saw that in the early 2000s with online trading, for example. Yeah. Um, and we saw that with, um, you know, low-cost airlines, um, like Jetstar as an example, again, Qantas Group, but it, it, they were pushed out with not a lot of help apart from balance sheets and create your own brand, start from scratch, your own system, just be a low-cost airline. And that was really a successful strategy. So I think um, those those examples exist. Um, now we're talking about the digital context and it's like, you know, can they do the same thing again? Um, you know, Comsec was a good example in Australia, of that again, of that. Um, can they create those things again from it with corporate backing but without corporate control? Yeah, I know the subjects of digital transformation, but I guess what we're talking about, a lot of it comes down to the mechanics of it, right? Is that, you know, digital transva- transformation, the success or failure may come down to the, the very fact of whether or not they share the same office, right? You know, like when you're talking about sending out the, the low-cost airline to go native, so to speak, they have to do that outside of the outside of the, the setup, right? I mean, I, I had a Kapil Kane, who's the director of innovation for Intel China, on the show uh, a couple of weeks back, and he was saying that uh, he runs the Ideas to Reality uh, in a, um, accelerator in Shanghai, and he was saying his whole uphill battle with that was is getting Intel to agree to build the accelerator out of the office. Mm. And that was, he, he just said that was not, he couldn't compromise on it. If it was to work, he had to get these guys out of the office. And he, he tells like a, an innovative yeah. company, right? But he had to get yeah. them out into, um, I think it was Xnode or I can't, it's, maybe it's China Accelerator in Shanghai, for example, into their co-working space, right? Absolutely what he needed to do. So, I mean, that's what it came down to, just get people out, get them out into their own space and how important that was because then they were actually mixing with people from all over. It could have been people yeah. from a bank or an airline in there, right? So, We're just not feeling constrained by the politics and systems and processes that, you know, have evolved with scale um, in that mother organisation. But, you know, all the benefits, I think there's actually a really a close, a necessarily close relationship and, and probably I think there should be more um, ties between the startup community and uh, the top end of enterprise yeah. um, markets because the the reality is that all startups and, and the vast majority fail, uh, spend most of their lives desperately seeking customers, distribution, brand and operational scale. And, um, you know, the other end of the spectrum at the moment, we're seeing the same level of desperation in, in the, the top end of the enterprise market, seeking agility, um, innovation, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> being able to create products and services uh, rapidly. So, you know, there's natural opportunities there, I think, for partnerships and, and open API and plug-and-play um, relationships to, to make those two worlds come together or help those two worlds come together. And th- they need to borrow from each other and learn from each other as, in, a, in a reasonable way. And I think yeah, in between all of that, and I think something we're seeing at the moment is is the mid-market or private equity. Um, so beyond VC, when you're talking about mature assets, you've got you know perhaps um, businesses of you know a billion dollars in scale who've got you know, good margins, but not so much technology debt. Um, they're traditional businesses, but with a great digital opportunity. And we're starting to see those companies in property and development, um, you know, mm. medical science, other things, really invest um, at an interesting level to to take advantage of it. And they just move so much more quickly. And we're seeing that in region now as well. So, you know, large groups and organisations have got, um, you know, that aren't too big, but have got either mm. regional organisations that have, um, a really good customer set, a really good brand, an appetite for investment, 
um, some of them are doing some M&A, but others are combining that with new venture activity. Um, mm. So, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating sort of Yeah, they, they sort of have the best of both worlds, don't they? Because they have the resources, but they are agile enough. Like you say, all the sort of the the... the the phenomena that comes with being a big company, they don't mm. have all that sort of baggage, do they? The politics That's and so right. on, they're, they're pretty agile in that sense. So, Well, you think about the Virgin Group, probably a good example of, yeah. of then a reasonable job of being able to spin out and iterate um, or enter new markets um, with enough energy and momentum to, to be dangerous because they find it to the right level and they find the right talent. Um, they don't get everything right, but um, they've been able to iterate a lot of successful business from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I, you know, I think those examples are, are, are out there. And the thing is they've got enough scale to, have, to be dangerous and to, to challenge the, the top end of the, the enterprise market. But as I said, without all those that technology debt um, and constraints of, of corporate structure um, that those companies have. Yeah, I certainly think they, they, they could do damage and they challenge in the sense of, you know, competing for talent. I think that's a key part of it, isn't it? Um, yeah. I had, uh, just as an example... I think it was yesterday I did an interview with Chirayu Wadke, who's uh, one of the partners at Seed Plus. Mm. They're in Singapore, one of your neighbours probably. And he, um, yeah. Yeah. ex-Google. So, you know, he spent all his, uh, you know, spent many years at Mountain View. Um, but he was originally from India, went to Mountain View, um, worked for Google on some pretty decent projects. But the example there is you get to a point and then you think, actually, I really want to work on a 10x project now. Mm. And I think, you know, when you're all that sort of talent, you kind of ask those questions. You, you probably don't even think like, oh, you know, I want to increase my salary by 50,000 or maybe that's something you want to do, but it's not the driver, is it? Because after a point, it becomes all kind of just, you know, a bonus really, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I agree. I think... Um you know, as I said, the vast majority of ventures don't succeed, but the ones that do become great stories and, and you know, it's 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 an adventure that a lot of people want to go on, whether it's mm. about money, but as you say, from most of that type of, um, those types of leaders and talent, you know, who are engineers or product people or um, technologists or creatives or marketers, they, they want to, you know, build something or yeah. get onto a challenge, solve a problem, you know, make a mark in some way. Um, as much as they do uh, want to be commercially successful. And then I think we go through different generational changes as well where you might have a, a bit of that appetite or a lot of that appetite when you don't have um, a family, for example, or a mortgage. But, um, you know, some people, are, and I think this is another thing that we're starting to see is that sharing economy and some people won't be encumbered by um, those constraints in the future. They might be more mobile. They probably mm. won't have mortgages. They might, you know, rent for their lives. And live in different countries part of the year. Um, school their children in different countries part yeah. of the year. And um, they certainly so, won't be owning a car probably either. So, no. What, what's the point? You, no one will be allowed to drive a car. In <laughs> so, right. Know. Yeah. You just call it up on your Uber. I mean, that's the reality. I mean, this sort of all comes into you know. I mean, if you're talking about helping, inspiring people to succeed, um, you know that. That also comes into it, isn't it? Because that's the sort of, you know, we talk about, you know, the house and the car and all that. That's very traditional package, isn't it, for a, mm. an expat and so on. But it's all changing, isn't it? And as you say, like sharing economy and so on, and people want the experience, they want the adventure, and they seek out the 10x challenges and so on. Yeah. You know, you're, you're sort of front-running the trend in that sense. You're at the, 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 
the tip of the spear, but there's, you know, the large organizations are playing catch up, aren't they? Because the people who are making those decisions are still from that generation who grew up with all those kind of perks, right? But that's all changing. No, no doubt. Yeah, it is changing. I, I, but I think those things are now things that you can borrow or, or you know, short-term lease. And that's the interesting thing about um, those capital assets. Um, I, I think there's still a, you know, people have a sense of wanting to of belonging and permanence, but maybe they'll attach that to, to different things yeah. um, rather than possessions or locations. Maybe it'll be brands or uh, missions or objectives um, or shared social values or, or something else. But you know, I think it's interesting to see some of the bigger organisations. We're, we're working with one in Australia that's copying the Spotify, um, you know, tribe model um, mm. of, of organisational design and um, way of working. And, and there's lots of those experiments going on, I think, at scale now. Uh, you know, the Agile movement, Agile Lean Kanban sort of thinking that, you know, probably out of Japan originally, mm. or a lot of it, um, is really permeated so much of the world and, and product thinking and product as a service and, you know, user-centered design and design thinking, they're, they're all really interesting um, evolutions of the technology space um, that are much more broadly applied now than perhaps many people know. But, um, you know, the, people are trying some really radical things at scale, which would be really exciting. I mean, the, the first at-scale companies to get that sort of transformation right will be pretty amazing stories. Absolutely. Hey, before you go, John, I want to ask you about um, your thoughts on the real frontier markets because... Uh, I mean, just as an example, like we look at what's happening in Vietnam in terms of the growth rates and so on. I mean, e- even if we were to have this conversation six months ago, it would have been, def- it would have been different. The, the, the sort of the, the media spotlight has been on Singapore and Hong Kong and maybe Shanghai, increasingly now Shenzhen as an example. Mm. But outside of those, you know, those markets, which are probably give the kind of conditions that you could get in San Francisco or Melbourne or wherever, right? What are you seeing in these more frontier markets like Vietnam, Indonesia, and maybe even Thailand? Are you seeing sort of a, a sh- people sort of dipping their toe in that a little bit more? What's happening? Oh, absolutely. I, th- I think the, you know, they do have the benefit of much bigger populations than, you know, Hong Kong and Singapore. Um, and there's good market there. Uh, I think the the education standards have increased around the region. Uh, there are great universities in most of those locations or at least producing very smart kids. And um, all those those kids are going to, you know, Western universities and coming back. Um, mm. And I think it's really the gravity is changing. So, the, you know, it, they realise there's more opportunity, there's emerging opportunity in, in their home markets where they can be closer to family and friends or, or live in a way that they're more comfortable or, you know, in a better climate, whatever it might be. But... Um, I think, you know, definitely they're, they're emerging quickly. I think, you know, KL's produced just a stack of IP mm. um, and I know great stories out of the Philippines and Thailand and Indonesia as well um, and we're increasingly working across those locations with clients who are not just multinationals who want to enter those markets but with incumbent uh, growth companies who are looking to grow out of them um, or with regional uh, companies, you know, maybe from Northern Asia who are trying to... Um, you know, establish a footprint of services through either acquisition or organic growth. So, look, they're, they're very quickly changing in that that sense. Mm-hmm. Well, do you see a lot of um, sort of interest now, or do you see any kind of interest coming for the Asia to Asia market? That I mean, you talk about North Asia as an example. Do you obviously? A big part of the story has been the shift from outside Asia into Asia, mm-hmm. but. Asia no itself is a two-speed market or maybe two or three speeds, right? I mean, 
now you're seeing people saying, oh, okay, I'm going to shift from Shanghai to, you know, Ubud or whatever. I mean, is there any sort of that going on? In, in terms of um, at a candidate level or a commercial level? Both, yeah. I mean, both. is there yeah, sort of any both, trend there? Both. Absolutely both. And I, I think, um, you know, the commercial interests of, of some of the Chinese internet technology companies, um, they're, they're certainly interested in, and very active in Southeast Asia, not always directly with their own platforms, but through partnerships or investment um, or acquisition of assets. Um, and I think certainly we're seeing, you know, it, we dealt with a, it was a, a VC-backed company in India, you know, want to re-up their investment in the Australian market um, and, and, you know, invest in leadership there recently. Um, we're certainly seeing migration of talent I think, um, you know, I talk, talked to a couple of people recently in Singapore who were thinking about or moving to, um, you know, the Bangkok or KL or, um, you know, other parts of, of the region. Mm. And I think that's more a common conversation than perhaps it was two or three years ago. It mm. feels like it is. Um, that's anecdotal. But, um, you know, we're certainly aware of a lot of opportunities for those people. So yeah. if you want to go and live in KL, there's a, there's a ton of opportunity. We'd, but we're talking to a company who, are quite happy for people to commute from Singapore to Vietnam on a weekly basis wow. um, for a couple of years. So, it's you know when you talk about the lady in Oregon commuting to San Francisco, it, that is way less convenient yeah. to go from you know Changi to Ho Chi Minh. So, um, you know it's it's an interesting time. I think that mobility people are much more comfortable, and you see this sort of you know whether it's Airbnb or you know there are other ways you can make this work um, mm. than just sort of you know permanent relocation. Yeah, making it work. I mean, it's interesting. I, I think that a lot of the change, I mean, I know like, if you think about all the sort of platforms, they come from West Coast, California, but they're really being put to use here in Asia, aren't they? They're talking about Airbnb and all that. So it's like, this is where it's, I think you're really starting to see the tip of the change here because uh, that that Oregon to San Francisco example is an exception. Yeah. I think in Asia, you, you see, this is where the future of work is going to come out of, right? Because the people who, the talent that comes here are going to be the ones that sort of change all that. And they've already Agreed. committed, by moving here, they've already committed, they've already sold all their worldly possessions to come here, right? So, <laughs> Well, they might be just renting a space for those possessions to exist in another country. Oh, well, we know a few people like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no, absolutely. I, I think it's a really, um, it's, it's exciting in the sense that um, it's almost like, this, these emerging markets skip a lot of the hangover or yeah. legacy uh, constraints that, that the really mature markets, you know, have and don't think about. So they don't have to unlearn anything. Um, they're just going straight to the to the end point or the future state um, mm. that, you know, for some countries and organisations are going to be aspirational uh, for most of them um, in, in the near term. So it's, it's going to be great to see, you know, what works and what doesn't, um, but ultimately everything will, will probably settle in a in a pretty dynamic mm. structure between you know working, you know collaboratively, separately, um, you know migrating from adventure to mission to opportunity, um, you know educating your children in different ways. I think everyone would probably agree that uh, education in most countries is underwhelming in terms of mm. how well it prepares children for the amount of change that they're going to see and most most degrees or courses are out of date by the time they're put into a curriculum um and more out of date by the time you study them yeah i mean i even think for your your daughter when she goes out into the world of work you know that's going to be what 20 30 something isn't it oh, so, 
It was hopefully sooner rather than later, but no. <laughs> is it? Oh, I got my maths right. How old is she now? No, she's only she's only three right, last week. Right. So um, no, she. You know, it'll be an interesting world. It'll be who knows what jobs will exist. Certainly, right, right. probably none of the ones that exist now. Certainly, um, nothing they teach in school, right? I mean, that's the point. Certainly, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, she's learning Mandarin. That's probably the a starting point. For she's her, learning Mandarin. Yeah, she should learn Mandarin. I think if she learns Ruby coding or something else, that'll be useful. But I think AI will probably do the coding. Um, within five to ten years. Right. So, there you go. Well, who knows? Yeah, who knows? But, I mean, it's what? awesome you getting into learn Mandarin. I mean, something I talked about earlier is that, um, not on this podcast, but um, is uh, about number of Mandarin enrollments in the US has actually fallen mm. in higher education. It's interesting. And yeah. just, I, you know, I just you... want to, well, maybe they're relying on Siri to sort that out for them. <laughs> AI. <laughs> or Google. There you go. Which, yeah, that's the, that's the thing. We're, we're, we could be learning things that we don't need to learn. Awesome. Hey, John, it's been absolutely, um, well, it's having a pleasure having you on. I mean, just love talking about where that trend is. I mean, you, you sort of see it before everybody else, really. And you're, I don't know, in, in, a, in a, I speak with affection to say that you're the canary in the coal mine, right? When you sort of. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully I get out because I'm not in a cage down there. But no, 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 you're singing. <laughs> so I think you see it happen because it happens first with the movement of people, right? And uh, until this point, it's all sort of anecdotal. It's like, oh, yeah, I've got, a, I've got a friend who left Melbourne and went to, you know, Shenzhen or whatever. And it's all those kind of stories building up. And then we sort of look back in the future and we realized that was all kind of just the dots being joined up, right? It was the events. Yeah. Yeah. It was a big yeah. shift that we were sort of in the middle of, which like all these sort of historical shifts, we, we don't ever name it until sort of a hundred years later. Oh, that was that thing, right? Yeah, we, that, that's what happened. Exactly. Yeah. It's getting to critical mass, but you know, I think those the critical mass is approaching for this region um, on a, on a range of fronts. Um, and I think people sense it and certainly, the, the more globally minded people do. I think I think there's still a, a malaise in Europe and North America and even to some extent um, in Australia mm. that they don't have a concept of the scale um, or the momentum uh, or the quality of what's happening here. And the people who do come here are getting pretty excited. Awesome. John Tanner, everybody, co-founder of Mitchell Lake Group. John, before you go, URL, we can find out more about you. Yes, uh, mitchelllake.com, M-I-T-C-H, E-L-L-A-K-E.com. Um, yeah, just uh, check in, reach out anytime. Awesome. Real pleasure. And six months, come and update us. More trends. Let us know what's... Because it will change in six months. Six months since you last were on, a lot has changed. And Absolutely. Us- well, probably, I might get my AI to turn up and do the interview next <laughs> The AI be than- will be down in Ubud somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> was yeah, still working? Yeah, exactly. All right, John, real pleasure. Speak to you soon. Thanks, man. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.